My title for us this morning is Sin and Intercession. Sin and Intercession. To begin, let me, be, let me say by saying this, or to begin, let me say this. Hermeneutics is the science and art of interpretation. Everyone performs hermeneutics. It doesn't matter who you are, what level of education you possess, whether you realize it or not, you perform hermeneutics. When we read news or articles, when we watch a movie or listen to a song and read the lyrics, we are performing the science and art of interpretation which is called hermeneutics. When we're studying the Bible, we're performing hermeneutics too. And when we approach texts, like the text that we are approaching this morning, hermeneutics plays a very important role because of this principle. The rules of hermeneutics provide a framework that guards against poor interpretation. Let me say that again. The rules of hermeneutics provide a framework that protect against poor interpretation. In other words, the Bible doesn't mean what you think it means because you want it to mean that. Or the Bible doesn't mean what someone said to me it means. That person might or might not be wrong having performed or not performed the rules of hermeneutics. I say all that to say this, church. There are difficult texts in the Bible. There are no two ways about it. And when we talk about difficult texts, we're talking about texts that are difficult for at least two reasons. First, a text can be difficult because the interpretation is difficult to palate. It's hard to swallow, in other words. At one point in Jesus' ministry, for example, some of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can listen to it? They weren't saying that they couldn't understand the teaching. They're saying that they understood the teaching perfectly, but it was the understanding that was difficult to receive. As a result of sometimes coming across doctrines that are very clear in the Bible but difficult to receive, we sometimes steer teachings in a direction that is, we might say, more palatable. The rules of hermeneutics protect the interpretation of the Bible against that. But for one reason that a text can be difficult is because of its clear meaning that is difficult to swallow. Secondly, a text can be difficult to interpret because the text's teaching, maybe it's unusual, or it's wording. Maybe it uses words that are rarely found in the New Testament. Or because of its ideas. Maybe they challenge our status quo. Frankly, this doesn't happen too often. When we read the Bible, more often than not, the Bible is clearly understood. But in a case like this morning, we could get five different scholars together to read and study this text, and we might walk away with three different interpretations, not because the words are unclear, the words are clear, we can understand the words, but because the teaching itself is a bit vague. 
In our text this morning, this is the case. In other words, we're not looking at a text that's difficult because it's clear, but tough to swallow. We're looking at a text that's difficult because it isn't very clear what's being conveyed, although the words are perfectly understandable. Are you confused yet? So, without a question, this is one of the more difficult texts in the Bible. But what's interesting about this text is, although it is difficult, there aren't a number of interpretations that venture outside of what we would call conservative biblical doctrine. We have some choices that we have to make. So that's essentially what we're going to be doing and what I'll be guiding you through today. This is going to be less of a sermon and more of a lecture. So without any further ado, I've got two simple points for you this morning. The first of which is to pray or not to pray. To pray or not to pray. This is found in 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. This is the first part of our difficult text this morning. So if you look at it again with your eyes, I'll read it aloud. We've covered a lot already, so let me start with the text again. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say you should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. <laughs> the more I read it, the more I, this is crazy. So we're going to take 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, first and foremost, as it is chronologically, the first verse, but also because it starts the thought process that John is trying to convey here. So as we always do, so we will this morning, let me share with you a couple of things that are worthy to note in this text. First, John tells us that there's a brother involved in sin. John tells us that there's a brother involved in sin. In other words, John doesn't say, if you see someone or if you bump into someone in the street or if someone who does not know Jesus is involved in sin. No, he's been talking to a church for five chapters, distinguishing between those who are in Christ and those who aren't in Christ. And at the end of his letter, chapter 5, verse 16, he says, if you see a brother committing a sin... This seems to say, in my opinion, that this brother is a Christian. He's not, he doesn't say false teacher, which he has already in the letter. He could have said that again. He doesn't say someone following the teachings of Antichrist, which he has already said in the letter, which he certainly could have said again. No, he says, chapter 5, verse 16 again, if any of you see a brother committing a sin, ask God and God will give him life. So the first thing I want you to note in this text is that John is referring to someone he calls brother. Not a false teacher, not a worldly person, someone outside of Christ that doesn't have the spirit abiding in him. He says, brother. The second thing I want you to note is this. John tells us that if someone would ask, presumably for God to intervene and to do something in this person's life, then God quote, will give him life. God will give him life. Now, we're introduced to another difficult part that leads to another set of questions that we have to ask. Does John mean eternal life? If John means eternal life, then 
What kind of brother is he referring to in the beginning part of verse 16? Is it a real Christian or is it a nominal Christian? Is it a non-Christian that is simply associating with the church community and he refers to him as, as brother? If he's not referring to eternal life when he says God will give him life, does John mean life as in the opposite of death? Does John mean life as in forgiveness and, and a second chance at living here on earth for God and for his glory? These are obviously questions that have to be answered if this text is going to be understood. All of this is difficult to ascertain from this quick comment that John makes. And quite frankly, it's compounded by the next comment that John makes. He says, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say you should pray for that. So for now, as I said, let's assume, as I believe it is safe to assume, that when John says, if someone sees his brother committing sin, not leading to death, he's referring to a guy who is a genuine Christian. He's referring to a guy who is in Christ. Otherwise, I don't know that it would be like John to use a word like brother. So if we say that this person is a Christian and is engaged somehow, some way, to one degree or another in a sin that does not lead to death, and John furthermore says, if you pray, God will restore that person to life. But if there is sin leading to death, I do not say you should pray for that. As we juxtapose those two positions, assuming that the person being referred to by John is in fact a brother in Christ, then we have a handful of positions. I'm going to read them off to you. Five to be specific. Number one. First, if it's proposed that John could be it is proposed, excuse me, that John is referring to Old Testament principles, wherein sins are divided into intentional and unintentional sins. That's one argument that's made. If you read Leviticus 4, Numbers chapter 15, you'll find that there are intentional sins and unintentional sins. Some people argue that perhaps John is referring to that. I don't know that there's a lot of evidence for that. John hasn't indicated any of that thought process before in his epistle or in his gospel, so I think that's an unlikely position. Second, it's proposed that John could be referring to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you're familiar with the Gospels, then you may be familiar with this text, Mark chapter 3, Verses 28 and 29. I'll give you a second to write that down. Mark chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. We read this, and the letters are in red, so therefore Jesus is speaking. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins, how many sins? All sins will be forgiven, the children of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. 
So the second option that we're exploring today is that of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is a possibility too, but unlikely because I think every time the Spirit of God is referred to in John's epistle, he makes it very clear that he refers to God abiding in us or to the Spirit specifically. It would seem a little vague for John to be referring to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in this text, namely someone who sends to death, I do not say you should pray for that sin being the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's a possibility, but I think it's an unlikely possibility. And no, we're not going to exegete Mark chapter 3 this morning. Thirdly, it's proposed that John is referring to particularly serious sins. And this this might be what we would call the Roman Catholic view. In the Roman Catholic view, there's a division between venial sins, which are pardonable, and mortal sins, which are not. But there really isn't anything in the Bible about that distinction at all whatsoever. We don't see in the Bible a Roman Catholic support for the teaching of these sins will kill you and are not pardonable, but the rest are. We don't see that division in the Bible. And we certainly don't see a list given, like the sin of gluttony, and pride, etc., like the seven deadly sins. That's a teaching that has been pulled out of the air that's not in the Bible. So hermeneutically, again, we have no framework to support that teaching. Fourth, it's proposed that John is referring to two different people in this verse. One is a Christian. The other is not. The first guy is a brother who's committing sin, but it's not a sin to death. The second guy is not a Christian, and John says, I do not say you should pray for that. This sin would be the sin of denying Christ in the flesh. If you have been with us for any amount of time as we've gone through the epistle of 1 John, you know that John says, Jesus is the only Son of God, and he came in the flesh. How many times has John said that? A lot, right? I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. My hands handled him. This is the testimony that we give to you that the Son of God came in the flesh. This is something that John has gone over again and again and again, and therefore some interpreters have come down on this point, namely that the brother may or may not be a Christian, but the second guy definitely isn't, and that is what leads to death and should not be prayed for. Namely, the rejection of Jesus, the Son of God, coming in the flesh to save the world. If you don't believe that, that Jesus came in the flesh to save sinners, then that's a sin to death. It's arguable. That's four. Five. And finally, it's proposed that John is referring to two different Christians one of whom is facing a temporal judgment from the Lord for his or her casual disrespect of his law. In this case, we're not talking about eternal life, but we're talking about life, period. There are cases, you see, in the Bible where God judged people who were guilty of serious sin. Let me give you some examples. One example would be that of Achan, In the Old Testament, the book of Joshua, Achan and his family 
along with the entire community, were commanded by God not to steal those things that they would conquer from the city of Jericho. Everything from the city of Jericho was to be dedicated to the Lord. And everybody dedicated all that they captured from Jericho to the Lord, except Achan and his family. They went to battle against the city of Ai, and they were super cocky and confident because they had been winning. The Lord was on their side, but this time when they went to battle with plenty of men to win the battle with, they lost. And Joshua said, Lord, why have we lost? And God said, there is sin in the camp. What was the sin in the camp? The sin in the camp was the deliberate disobedience of Achan and his family to the command of God. As a result, God judged immediately Achan and all his family, killed them on the spot. A second example can be found in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, in a similar situation, sell all of their goods, like all the other Christians in the community at the time, sell all of their goods and put it in a single pot to be managed by the apostles. They're doing this because they did not have their vaccination cards. No, I'm just kidding. They were Christians, and as a result of their being Christians, their businesses were being closed down. They were getting put out of their jobs. They were being ostracized in society because they were followers of Christ. You could be a Jew, but you couldn't be a Christian. So as a result of this, they said, let's all put everything that we have together in one pot so that we can sustain each other. The widows can get what they need. The orphans can get what they need. Those of us who can work, we will work, and we will continue to contribute to our community so that it's safe during this time of persecution. And they did that. And when they did that, Peter approaches Ananias and Sapphira because the Lord reveals to them that they, in fact, did not give their earnings. They said, yes, we did give our earnings. And Peter said, you're not lying to men. You're lying to the Holy Spirit. And God kills them both. In that instant, God drops them dead. A third example of a situation like this is found in 1 Corinthians 5 and in 1 Corinthians 11. Two instances in the letter of 1 Corinthians In 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 11, we have two different instances, both of which include illness and death as a result of deliberate sin and disregard for those things that God has clearly taught for his community. Regarding 1 Corinthians 5, Paul rebukes the church because there is a man in the church, Paul says, and I quote, who has his father's wife. In other words, we can read between the lines. I think what is taking place is that a man is having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. But what adds insult to this injury is the church at Corinth is like, praise God, we're all free in Jesus. I love the liberty that you're exercising in Jesus. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5. You, plural you, meaning the church, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. That's 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 11. 
Regarding that text, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul addresses the disrespectful and nonchalant way the church is participating in the Lord's Supper. As a result of this, he says, and I quote, let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning, the, this is reading in between the lines here, without discerning the value and the importance of the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why, Paul says, many of you are weak and sick, and some of you have died. Now, aside from the, the fact that we see a very, very important belief in the New Testament on church discipline. In addition to that, we see that church discipline does not happen on the whims of some leader. It happens within a hermeneutical framework, which is this. The same laws that the Lord gave to his people then apply now. The same rules that he gave to his people then apply now. So essentially what we're looking at when we look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, are five options. Intentional versus unintentional sins, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the Roman Catholic view, which is the venial versus mortal sins, which there isn't any support for, believer versus unbeliever in the text itself, and temporal judgment. So while there are a number of reasonable points to be made in each one of these cases, in this particular text, I don't think it's far-fetched to understand John to be saying this. The word brother signifies that these people are, in fact, Christians. The phrase, quote, sin not leading to death, is literally in the Greek, sin not toward death. And the other phrase is the same. Sin toward death. And in my opinion, that seems to refer to a sin or sin that has serious physical ramifications. This would explain John's phrase, you shall ask and God will give him life. In my mind, that phrase only makes sense if this going toward death literal translation is understood physically. Because, frankly, all sin leads to death, correct? There is no sin that does not lead to death. And so John says in verse 17, to clarify the point that he's trying to make, if you look at verse 17, it says, all wrongdoing is sin. <laughs> in other words, all sin kills you, but... There is sin that does not lead to death. Well, that doesn't make sense in Christian philosophy. In Christian philosophy and theology, all sin leads to death. But here, in my opinion, the distinction that he is making, he is making so that people understand that's not the sin I'm talking about. I'm not talking about sin in general. I'm talking about a sin that leads to death. 
That seems to me like he's saying no Christian is perfect, but that doesn't lead you to death. If you flagrantly disregard Christ as a Christian, if you flagrantly disregard the laws of the community as they are taught in the New Testament, there will be another outcome for you than for the Christian who is prayed for and who has life restored to them. Therefore, I think John's reference to a person being restored to life versus a person sinning toward death signals to those persons, Achan, Ananias, and Sapphira, those people in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11, whose sins resulted in serious temporal judgment in this life, namely the loss of life. So in my opinion, if this is the opinion that is assumed, then what we are talking about is John giving the church a very grim reminder of the seriousness with which God deals with sin. In other words, if we claim to be in Christ and we are part of a community and we are bringing shame and dishonor and disrepute on the name of Jesus Christ, it is not beyond God to kill us in this life to save us for the next one. I don't think that's a big stretch from the texts that I've read to you. In addition to that, I think it's also important for you and me to realize that life is valuable in the Bible. I want to share some verses with you. Life is good. Life is full of purpose. Life is full of meaning. And we should enjoy living. And if we don't enjoy living, or if our lives are prematurely ended, well, that's a shame. But it's not just a shame because life can be short. It's a shame because we can't use our life to honor God. Let me share some verses with you. You might want to write these down. The first one is this, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In other words, if I'm living my life, I'm living my life for Jesus. But if I were to die, that'd be good too. Psalm 30, verse 9. Psalm 30, verse 9. In that psalm, the poet says, What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Have you ever seen dirt praise Jesus? No. Will the dirt tell of your faithfulness? Have you ever seen dirt and trees sing? No. Is he saying that in the afterlife we don't praise the Lord? No, that's exactly not what he's saying. What he's saying is, is if I die, I can't praise you in my life. That's the point of my life. My life is to make much of Jesus, to make much of the Lord, what he's done and what he's promised to do in his faithfulness. And if I'm not here to tell you, well, then I can't tell you. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 Verse 10, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10, it says this, Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might, because there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the Sheol, 
in the grave, which is where you're going. <laughs> Ecclesiastes is a bit pessimistic. You read it, and it's like, you know, it's like your emo years when you're like 14. The whole idea behind Ecclesiastes is this. Life can be dark, but there is meaning and purpose and value in life. But don't forget that life can be dark. <laughs> That's basically how it goes back and forth in the book of Ecclesiastes. And in this particular case, he says, when you die, you can't do your work anymore. When you die, it doesn't matter what you know. When you die, you go into the grave, and that's it for you. He's not talking about the next life. He's not talking about eternity. He's talking about the end of this life. And friends, I want to tell you something. I think that we play up eternity so much, and I'm not one to put down eternity. Don't misunderstand me here. We play up eternity so much. The streets of gold and the mansions and the whole nine yards that we forget to use our life here and now for Jesus. And John is saying, listen, you can't just make decisions however you want, whenever you want. You've got to live in accordance with the Lord because the life he gives you, say amen if you're listening, he owns that life. He owns you. You don't get to just do whatever you want, whenever you want, because he's your father in heaven. He's your holy father. He's your heavenly father. And yes, he's intimate. And yes, he's close to you. And yes, he abides in you. But he is heavenly and he is holy. And he's got expectations of you. And he's calling you to live a life in accordance with his will. Now, this is a tough text. And we can see it from a couple of different angles and, and still be friends. But I think the reality of the matter is, is this. John is arguing this church. He's arguing that life is a gift. He's arguing that holiness is not negotiable. Our Christian life lived in the grace and mercy of our Lord. It's a gift and not to be abused, not to be taken advantage of, and not to be wasted. Don't waste your life. We are trying to get so comfortable that we're useless. God save us from this comfort. We do a great disservice to our God when we forget that he is holy and righteous and full of expectations for his people. Love? Yes. Mercy? Yes. Forgiveness and blessings? Yes. But expectations too? Help me out. Yes. Yes. Regarding prayer, I want to say this. It's important to note. John doesn't forbid us to pray for this cat who's sinning to death. He doesn't say, do not pray for that man. He says, I'm not saying you should pray for that guy. I think it's important that you need to know God is not telling you do not pray for this person. He's telling you, you need to have an awareness and appreciation of the decisions that people make for their life. And you need to know this. There are some people that you will pray for, and it will not change them. They are holding on to their decisions and their consequences with two hands, and they will not release them. Even in the most serious case, however, John is not forbidding prayer. He says, 
there is sin that leads to death. And you notice, he does not say there is a sin. Because then we would all go, what sin is it? Because then I could do whatever and just not do that one. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says, there is sin. This is a general right. There is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray for that. So let's not get bogged down with particulars or walk close to a line that we believe God has put down for us. We need to find the line and go the other way. Amen? We need to live holy lives, not lives that negotiate what is good and what is bad, what is righteous and what is unrighteous. So that's our first point, to pray or not to pray. The answer to that question is pray. Pray. Always pray. When in doubt, pray. But secondly, today I want to share with you this, a clear view of sin. This is found in verses 17 through 19, a clear view of sin. Now that we know what John is talking about, at least from my perspective, I do permit you allowance on occasion to disagree with me. This is one of those allowances. Now that we know where John is coming from, namely that the community of Christ followers should be mentally and spiritually committed to the commands of Christ, and that serious consequences may result from a Christian living as an outsider with complete disregard for Christ or his holiness, John readdresses the idea of sin, and I cannot think of any other reason for him to do this except to be crystal clear about what he's saying. What he said was a mouthful, no doubt, and now I believe he's reintroducing the simplicity of this idea, and he's going to do it in three simple ways. The first is this. He's going to teach us that there's a clear view of sin. There's a clear view of sin. You read verses 16 and 17, and you go, ah. Uh, I thought I understood, now I'm not so sure. Am I even a Christian anymore? Have I done the sin? Usually, by the way, if you're terrified of it, you're okay. If you don't care, then you need to worry. But first of all, John addresses, as a good pastor would, he addresses some of these concerns to his people. And he says in verse 17, hey, 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 listen, all wrongdoing is sin. The word wrongdoing is the word unrighteousness. All unrighteousness is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. Not some wrongdoing. Not certain wrongdoing. How much wrongdoing? All wrongdoing is sin. All of it. There's an objective standard truth here, church. Because God has authored the universe and placed within it and placed within us moral expectations and standards. We know what's right and wrong. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it in the secret of cover and be dishonest and do it so that somebody else doesn't find out. We know. We know what's right and wrong. We say we don't, and we philosophize about it so that we can sound wise. But at the end of the day, lying is wrong. Period. But I think John says what he says here so that we can have some clarity about sin and to know that what he was referring to before is that all sin leads to death, but, but not all sins lead to death immediately in a temporal fashion. 
right away. That's first. There's a clear view of sin. But second, there's a clear view of conviction. There's a clear view of conviction. Get this. Look at verse 18 with me. It says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. That's a good translation. That's a literal translation. Does not touch him. Listen, Christians are saved from sin, not for sin. Of all people, Christians should be keenly aware of the negative ramifications of sin. We, of all people, should be steering away from it, leading lives that are free of it. And when we are guilty of sin, and we're all guilty of sin, amen, there should be repentance and at least an understanding that we don't, quote, keep on sinning. That is, to sin habitually, casually, without conviction. Further, there's this promise. He who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. What is this a reference to? Most certainly, this is a reference to Jesus, as he is the only begotten Son of God, who protects us from the devil. You want to know who's on your team? Jesus is on your team. Listen, Paul says this in Romans 8. And, and John says it in, in, in 1 John chapter 5 earlier in the text. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We have the Spirit and Jesus both making intercession for us to the Father in the heavens. Jesus is praying for you. The Spirit makes intercession for you. Now, if you have the second and third person of the Trinity on your side, it doesn't really matter what the devil tries to do, does it? I will say this, though. Do not give him opportunity. Do not give him opportunity. James says it this way, resist the devil and he will flee. He doesn't say talk to the devil you know, these charismatics on TV, they're talking to the devil and having a whole argument with him. And then they go off on their fake tongues thing. Hermeneutics. All that is outside the framework. There is no one who has a conversation with Satan in the Bible. Even the archangel Michael, when he was taking the body of Moses, no one knows what happened to the body of Moses, because if we would have kept Moses, Jews would have worshipped him for eternity. There's no doubt about it. God decided to hide the body of Moses. The archangel Michael took the body of Moses and hid him and buried him in a hiding place. But Satan wanted his body, the scripture says. And when Michael came to claim the body, Satan was there. And you know what Michael said to Satan? The Lord will deal with you. That's the archangel Michael. Okay, Gabriel's the messenger guy. He's bringing all the text messages to everybody. Michael's the guy with the sword. He's the fighter. Every time we see a fight, it's Michael. Doesn't look anything like John Travolta. When the archangel Michael, who can kill, I mean, what, in, in 2 Kings, they killed like 180,000 soldiers, one angel? With the angel, they're not fat babies. 
Angels are terrifying creatures. And yet, when Satan was there and Archangel Michael was there following his God's command, take the body of Moses and bury him in a secret place, when he goes to claim the body of Moses, Satan is there and Michael says, oh, it's funny to see you here. What are you, guys, what are you doing here? No, he doesn't talk to him. He doesn't argue with him. He doesn't do anything except say, the Lord will speak to you. That's it. You want to win battles against the evil one? Ignore him and put your attention on Jesus. Put your attention on Jesus and ignore the evil one. So many of us have habits, addictions, faults that we're not overcoming because we aren't putting positive where the negative should be. We sit and we talk about it and we talk about it and we talk about it. And the last thing that we should be doing, many of us, is talking about it. We've talked about it enough. We don't need to talk more that I've got this shortcoming, that short. What we need to talk about is what Bible study I'm doing. What we need to talk about is how many days a week I'm exercising. What we need to talk about is what I'm cutting out of my diet and what I'm putting in my diet so that I feel good and I sleep good at night. So that during the day I have the energy by God to live a life that he's calling me to live. Not this other stuff where... Well, I haven't quit smoking yet because God hasn't delivered me. I had somebody tell me that. Dude, if you want to smoke, smoke. It's not good for you. Smoke. I don't care. But don't blame it on Jesus. You know what I mean? Resist the devil, and he will flee. As Christians, we must have conviction. Finally, there's not only a clear view of sin and a clear view of conviction, but there's also a clear view of our separation. This is in verse 19. He says, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You see that distinction again? John loves to say, that's them, this is us. We do us, they do them. He's done that throughout the entire book. So it only makes sense, in my opinion, that when he says brother in verse 16, he's not referring to some guy he's not sure about. To close out this tough thought process, John reminds us, as he's already done in 1 John chapter 2, that the Christian and the world are at odds. No one who is a friend of the world can be a friend of God, he says. No one can love God and the world. That the Christians listen to the apostles and the unbelievers listen to the world. That we have eternal life and the world does not. So throughout every chapter, that's a reference to chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5, what I've just reiterated to you. Each one of those things comes from a chapter, and in each one of those chapters, John says, this is us, and that is them, and there is no blending of the two. If we would ever be healthy, successful Christians, say amen if you want that, if you want to be a healthy, successful Christian who is growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, then you must love Jesus and hate the world. You can't love Jesus and flirt with the world. You can't love Jesus and tease the world. And you can't have half Jesus and half world. 
is Jesus or nothing. Now, I'm not saying that we can't be in the world and not of it. We should be in the world and not of it. We should be pushing back the darkness with the gospel. We should be using technology, etc., the arts, to convey the gospel. We've got to redeem some of those things and use it for God's glory. Amen? Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But we must love Jesus, and we must hate sin. Sin in general, sure. Sin of others? Of course. But our own sin, most of all. The Prince of Puritans, John Owen, said it like this. Kill your sin, or your sin will kill you. How seriously are you dealing with your sin? How seriously are you dealing with the offenses that you put in God's face? Are you repenting and living with an attitude of repentance? Are you forgiving as your Father in heaven has forgiven you? 1 John chapter 8, uh, 1, verses 8 through 10. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Are you implementing the spiritual disciplines in your life to help keep yourself off of the sinful path and on the righteous path? 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who thus hopes in Jesus purifies himself as Jesus is pure. You might say, man, Joe, that sounds, that sounds hard. Sounds like a lot. It is. It's a lot because Jesus paid a price for you in full, complete, start to finish. He did not leave any change on the transaction. You are completely redeemed. Not partially. You don't have to add to it or subtract from it. What Jesus did for you, you receive in full by faith. And he has done this not so that you could live an unrighteous and unholy life, but so that you could live a life that is righteous and holy and demonstrates the truth of the gospel. This is what it means to be a Bible-believing Christian. Not that we wave signs and spew unloving, hateful speech. Please know that as often as CNN says that's what it means to be an evangelical, they're lying. We don't see that in either our Lord or the apostles. You better speak the truth, but you better speak the truth in love, with wisdom, with forthrightness, with an unapologetic attitude, but don't be nasty. There's no, no need to be nasty. No one has been so rude to someone that they led them into the kingdom. Like, your rudeness just really convicted me. I, I just was so attracted to Jesus because you were such a jerk. 
That's never happened, never, in a million years, never. God is going to do what he is going to do in the people's lives, but he's going to use you as a conduit. So speak the truth, but speak it in love. Be firm when you need to be firm. Be gentle when you should be gentle. Pray to God to ask you to give you wisdom so that you know when you need to be encouraging and when you need to be convicting. But in either time, speak the truth how? In love. In closing, let me say this. Hermeneutics is the science and art of interpretation. It's a principle that gives us the framework in which we perform interpretation and reach conclusions. Today, we've done just that, and it's a challenge because it's a difficult text. But the reason we stay within this framework is because it isn't relevant what you think or what I think. What is relevant is what God thinks. And we do our best to stay as close to what God's word says as we possibly can.